Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals from the perspective of people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting laws and regulations accordingly. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. Uh, Wayne is finally with us. Again, Wayne Paselli is, is part of our routine crew here, but he has been absent from the show for a while. So we're glad to have him. Wayne is the president and founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty Irby is with us as well. Marty is the executive director and our chief lobbyist in D.C., as is our tradition, before we get into the meat of the show, we'll turn it over to Marty for a legislative update. Marty, what do we have going on on the Hill? Well, I bring some very exciting news to you all today. This past Friday night, we passed the Big Cat Public Safety Act through the U.S. House of Representatives by an overwhelming majority of 67% with all of the Democrats voting and then 63 Republicans supporting that measure as well. We're hopeful that we can get the measure through the U.S. Senate this week by unanimous consent, and we're lobbying hard and pushing to get that done. Still working with our good friend Carol Baskin. We've seen a lot of press, Rolling Stone, and a ton of articles out there, so we appreciate everyone's support on that front. We continue to work on the FDA Modernization Act. That bill passed in a larger package through the House of Representatives a few months ago. It passed the Senate committee, but has not passed the full Senate yet. So there are negotiations that are ongoing. We have to get a reauthorization of the FDA's user fees done by the end of September, or that agency is going to have a thousand employees furloughed. And so we believe that we can get this legislation done in the larger package, and it would repeal a 1938 mandate that requires animal testing for any drug approved by the FDA, which is ridiculous in our modern day society with the technology that we have. We also continue to work on the Minks or Super Spreaders Act. That provision was included in the America Competes Act that passed the House. We face an uphill battle on that piece of legislation because of opposition from the senators from the state of Wisconsin on both sides of the aisle. So we need folks to continue to weigh in with their senators and support the Minks or Super Spreaders Act that would end mink farming in the U.S. because mink are the number one super spreader of COVID-19 besides human that have spawned six variants around the planet at mink farms. We continue to work on the Bear Protection Act or Bear Poaching Elimination Act to end the trade in bear gallbladders and bear bile because the Chinese government has been promoting that as a treatment for COVID-19 with no scientific basis. That legislation passed the U.S. Senate by unanimous consent twice two decades ago, but was opposed by Don Young in the House of Representatives. Representative Young is no longer there, and so we're hoping we can see some action on this bill before the end of the year in one chamber or the other. It's probably a long shot that we'll get that done and signed into law, but we do think we'll see action in this Congress. The SAFE and PAST Acts that deal with horse slaughter and horse soaring have been a big, big topic. We saw a hearing and a subcommittee markup in the House a month or so ago. Uh, it's stalled now. Uh, I'm not surprised. That's been the pattern for the past decade. And going into the August recess that started August 1st, Congress has kicked the can down the road once again on those two pieces of legislation. We might see some sort of ceremonial vote in the House before the end of the year, but that's likely all we'll see and have to move into the next Congress to continue working on those bills. Last but not least, the Animal Cruelty Enforcement Act that would establish an Animal Cruelty Crimes Unit at the Department of Justice is still front burner for us. We're going to be working for the appropriations 
that fund the Department of Justice in September and probably do an amendment on the House floor to try to include the Animal Cruelty Enforcement Act in that package. So that still stands a chance to enforce all of these laws that we have on the books that our federal government has not been enforcing. We appreciate everyone's support out there. It's going to be a great Congress when we're all done. And we're thankful for all of the work that you all have done it's been so hard, this Congress. We know it's been hard. It's taken more work than ever, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Marty, thanks. Uh, it's an impressive list of tasks, and I appreciate you keeping us all up to speed on them. Um, today, we are going to be talking about uh, something in front of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has made a great deal of news lately, and it has, depending upon your perspective, elated you or sent you to yoga poses and, and bath bombs and, and perhaps even taken to the street to protest. Next session, uh, they will hear a case that is near and dear to the work of Animal Wellness Action, uh, and that relates to extreme confinement, and particularly Prop 12, a California ballot initiative uh, that told suppliers that if they wanted to sell chickens, pork products, perhaps some others, inside the state, those animals, wherever they were raised, could not have been raised in conditions of extreme confinement. So the law was passed. Uh, eventually, players were able to get this issue before the Supreme Court, and that is what we are here to talk about today. Whether the Supreme Court will intervene and undo the work for animals created by Prop 12. Uh, no one is more passionate about this issue, nor I would argue more knowledgeable uh, than our own Wayne Paselli. So I, I really was hopeful he would be able to make the show today to talk about this. Uh, we'll also introduce in a few minutes uh, Kate Schultz, one of our senior attorneys. Uh, I'll say a little bit about Kate when we get to where uh, I, I ask her to join relative to what we're doing uh, in front of the Supreme Court. But Wayne, tell us what exactly is meant by extreme confinement? What did California hope to do against it? And what's the risk for, for all animals involved? Well, Joseph, thank you. Uh, this issue is very personal to me because I initiated um, really all of the contemporary farm animal ballot measures in the United States. This is not a new issue. Animal advocates have been uh, deeply concerned about the most extreme forms of confinement in industrialized agriculture. And the three systems that have really been the main focus of advocates have been the confinement of young male calves uh, in crates to produce veal, uh, the confinement of laying hens uh, raised for uh, egg production in battery cages, so in cage confinement where five or six or eight birds are jammed in a cage about the size of a, of a bread box. And <clears throat> also the inhumane confinement of breeding sows in the pig industry. And the sows are confined in crates called gestation stalls or gestation crates. They're two foot by seven foot cages that inhibit the animals even from turning around. So California has been on the task for uh, many years. In 2007, uh, I initiated and we built a very big coalition of organizations to advance Prop 2. And that measure sought to stop all those forms of confinement that I just described. It was a landslide vote. 63% of Californians voted to stop that extreme confinement. 
and essentially to embrace a performance standard for the animals, that the animals, uh, the veal calves, the laying hens, and the breeding sows should be able to lie down, stand up, turn around, and freely extend their limbs. <clears throat> Soon after that, California's legislature passed a separate bill to say that if you want to sell eggs in California, uh, then you have to meet the standards of the law uh, in California. So if you're an in-state producer of eggs, you've got to conform with the Prop 2 standards of lie down, stand up, turn around. And then also, if you want to sell eggs into California from Indiana or from Iowa or Minnesota or Texas, you also had to meet those standards. It was a level playing field for all of the producers who wanted to sell uh, that animal product within the state. So fast forward to 2018, uh, eight years after that egg standard was put into the law, Prop 12 built on uh, those existing standards. It set up very precise standards for space allotments for breeding sows, uh, laying hens, and veal calves, and it extended the sales restrictions uh, to veal and also pork that come from animals kept in that extreme confinement. So just like the egg producers had to abide by certain standards if they were selling eggs into California from Iowa, the pork producers in Iowa or North Carolina, if they chose to sell into California, also had to meet those production standards. And basically the sow was to have uh, a minimum of 24 square feet. Uh, in a gestation crate, it's about 14 square uh, feet. So it's not you know, hugely larger, but it's significant. And the animal at least can move around, can turn around, can walk around a little bit. These animals are built to move. They should be allowed to move. The system just, just got so out of whack in that the animals were basically denied their most fundamental instincts and social behaviors. And that, becomes that became standard in the industry. And whenever this was on the ballot, in Massachusetts, in Arizona, in Florida, California, voters approved these measures by double digits. The industry in the form of the uh, North American Meat Institute, the uh, Iowa pork producers, the American Farm Bureau Federation, the national pork producers, they recently have initiated a blitzkrieg of lawsuits to try to unwind Prop 12, which if, if there's a ruling against Prop 12 and it's struck down, it will most certainly have far broader implications than just nullifying provisions of Prop 12. It will extend to other geographic areas with similar restrictions, and it probably will affect a wide range of other animal welfare laws. But the agribusiness group sued, they lost time and time again, both on Prop 2 challenges and Prop 12 challenges. They lost 10 consecutive lawsuits. And the pork producers in the Farm Bureau then appealed after their most recent loss before the US Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. And they have essentially asked the Supreme Court to hear this case. Surprisingly, the Supreme Court decided to hear the case. And now the issue has been uh, briefed by the plaintiffs and defendants. There are amicus briefs that have been filed in addition to those formal pleadings uh, from the defendants and the, and, the, and the plaintiffs. And as you noted in your introduction, the case comes before the court at the beginning of its next term in October of 2022. 
what you have written about and what I think is really surprising to many animal advocates is the cooperation of the Biden administration in supporting this lawsuit. What has the Biden administration done to lend a voice against California's Prop 12? Well, it's very disappointing. The Biden administration has had an abysmal record on animal welfare uh, since it took over the keys to the White House and the executive agencies. It's not lifted a finger as wolves were slaughtered in Montana and Idaho and other states. It has been opening up national wildlife refuges to uh, sport hunting at a breakneck pace, allowing continued use of lead ammunition on those uh, refuges, which results in the poisoning of wildlife. It's shut down the work of uh, US-based international, um, uh, US-based dog rescues that do international work and halted imports of those dogs uh, for more than 100 countries. But I think the biggest offense to me is the Biden administration's attack on the authority of states to regulate commerce that's associated with extreme acts of animal cruelty, and that also poses, in this case, a food safety threat to Californians. Uh, I believe, <clears throat> and courts have ruled time and time again, that states uh, do have the authority to protect their citizens and to uphold the values of their citizens. The idea that pigs must be confined in a crate that is so small that they cannot even turn around, uh, that the sow may be in this crate for seven to 10 successive pregnancies, each four months long. So she may be in a crate for three years, unable to move more than a couple of inches. That is demonstrably inhumane. We also know that these hog factories, because they overcrowd animals and stress them, they make the animals more susceptible to the onset of disease. That's one reason why uh, the factory farmers pump them full of antibiotics for, you know, preventative reasons. Typically, we think of antibiotics as administered to people after they get sick so they can overcome an illness. Uh, we're giving 80% of all antibiotics in this country to farm animals before they get sick because we know the systems are fundamentally stressful and inhumane. <clears throat> So the bottom line is, Joe, we believe that states have the authority to take appropriate action to uphold animal welfare systems and standards, because that is an important value system that's been part of the culture and law of this country for nearly 200 years. And we also recognize that food safety problems are real. Millions of people are sickened uh, every year by food. Uh, that is not uh, produced in a way that is safe. And one of the really unsafe ways to produce food is to make animals enormously stressful uh, and stressed out. Um, and we know that MRSA and a number of other uh, pathogens are, are present in our food system. And in the absence of our federal government taking action to create any reasonable animal welfare standards, that's exactly the state of the law at the federal level, and in the absence really of strong food safety standards, we think the states have a very important role in addressing these animal cruelty and food safety issues. That's what Prop 12 was. That's what Amendment 3, which is quite similar in Massachusetts, uh, is as well. And there are all sorts of other state laws that protect animals and 
do have some impact on uh, commerce, but it's appropriate. Uh, we don't subordinate all of our value systems and food safety concerns uh, to uh, commerce. We balance commerce with these other value systems that we have in our society. And that's exactly what Prop 12 does. It's a fair law. It is not protectionist to California producers. California producers play by the same rules as those in Iowa or Minnesota. If Iowa and Minnesota farmers want to sell their products into California, that's their choice to do so, play by the rules that California has described and made plain uh, that the people of California care about. If they don't want to change the way they do business in Iowa with respect to pigs, because Iowa lawmakers and the federal lawmakers don't impose any standards, well, that's their prerogative now in the absence of state or federal laws in that state. They can send their pork to 49 states. They can send it to China. They can send it to South Korea and Japan, which they're already doing. California is a very small portion of the global market for U.S. produced pork. And already we have more sows outside of gestation crates in this nation that readily can supply every single ounce of pork that California needs to meet the demand of 40 million consumers in that state. The industry is crying crocodile tears on this issue and saying somehow that California is trying to change the way the industry operates. Well, according to the industry, more than 30% of all the sows raised uh, in the United States, and they're the ones who produce the piglets who go into the meat um, uh, portion of the industry, they are already outside of gestation crates. California accounts for less than 10% of all pork production demand in the United States. So we don't even understand the practical argument that the pork industry is making. It's overwrought, it's exaggerated, and what they're doing is just replaying their campaign against Prop 12 before the November 2018 election when they lost in a landslide after more than 62% of voters in the state said, we don't want to have anything to do with this extreme abusive mistreatment of sows, laying hens, and veal calves. Right. And, and Jermaine, to your point about the antibiotic use, I shared a story with you and Marty the other day that a new antibiotic resistant strain of MRSA is showing zoonotic tendencies. It, it is infecting people. Uh, it can't be treated with known antibiotics. And, and Wayne, yeah, it just goes to show that what we, what we say all the time around here is uh, helping animals helps us all. And Joe, let me just pick up on that important point that you just made. You know, we have been talking about mink farming and how the stressful conditions of, of mink in their cage confinement systems uh, threaten to spawn new variants of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, the whole uh, pandemic that we've been gripped uh, with for the last two and a half years was a consequence of a zoonotic disease, perhaps from a live wildlife market. We know that factory farms are a health uh, hazard and a health threat. We know that there's a case of USDA capture by industry, that the USDA is the promoter of agriculture and not so much the protector of consumers, certainly not the protector of animals. And in the absence of strong federal action, my God, this is precisely where the states step in. So we're talking about 
the idea of the pork industry asking conservative judges who have happened to be the majority on the Supreme Court to nullify states' rights. The states have important authority here. And, you know, my colleague, uh, Kate, uh, who's our senior attorney, uh, I know, uh, you know, is deeply versed in this issue of federalism and these questions of state authority and why Prop 12 is an appropriate exercise of state authority. Well, that's that's excellent. And thank you for setting me up to introduce her. Kate is our senior attorney, as Wayne mentioned. Since graduating the New York University School of Law in 2015, Kate has aimed to build her career around using the law in aggressive and creative ways to give power and voices to those who have none. Prior to joining our team, Kate was the staff attorney of the Animal Law Litigation Clinic, part of the Center for Animal Law Studies of Lewis and Clark Law School, and the first law school clinic in the country to solely focus on farmed animals. Before that, Kate was assistant district attorney for five years at the Queen's County District Attorney's Office in New York City, where she specialized in investigating and prosecuting crimes against animals as part of the office's Animal Cruelty Prosecutions Unit. So, Kate, you're 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 new to our team, relatively speaking. This is the first time on the show, so so welcome. I'm really glad you you joined us today. Thank you, Joseph, and thank you, Wayne. Wayne, you set me up ever so well to discuss some of the more. Uh, nitty gritty legal issues here. And I'm so excited to be here and nerd out a little with you guys. Well, so, nerding out is what we do. So you're, you're in a good little company. Bit, right. So I'll try and make it um, as easy to understand and maybe a little bit interesting as possible. Well, I'm sure it'll be interesting. And I'll just start you off with, with just a very simple question. Kate, what the hell's going on up there? I mean, what, what is, what, why did the Supreme Court take this case? What does that say about its overall philosophical agenda? And how does this contest uh, bode in terms of what you understand about other recent decisions that have made history this, these past couple of weeks? That's an excellent question, Joseph, and I'll try and address each part in turn briefly. So I think it is not an over-exaggeration to state that lawyers across the board, uh, regardless of your own political personal affiliations or biases, we're pretty surprised that the Supreme Court uh, granted certiorari over this case. Um, after that, it became clear that as we've gone through this term, uh, the supermajority of conservatives on the Supreme Court uh, have been amenable to turning over precedent or uh, examining and revising precedent in pretty substantial ways. I think regardless, again, of which way you personally feel about what's been happening with the Supreme Court, it would be disingenuous to say that these aren't huge major decisions that will affect American law, American policy, and the daily lives of Americans for decades to come. Now, the reason why that matters when it comes to this case is that this case also has the opportunity or ability or promise to affect a huge number of other legal issues, issues around policy and issues around state law for decades to come. Um, this case is essentially revolving around the idea that we lawyers call the dormant commerce clause. Most lawyers learn about this in law school and happily forget about it for the rest of their career. <laughs> but needless to say, it's obviously coming up here and coming up in a big way. The dormant commerce clause, just to get really, really a brief summary here for those who don't know, which is most people, because most people never have to deal with this and never hear about it in their lives, 
is an actually implicit way to read the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, which basically, in its extremely simplified form, states that uh, the individual states of the Union cannot create laws that discriminate against interstate trade or against other states' economies. For example, it would be very blatantly unconstitutional for uh, Colorado to say, you know, we just refuse to import Florida oranges. We just hate Florida oranges for no particular reason. We just don't like them. Boo on Florida. That would be blatantly unconstitutional. Now, it gets a little more complicated when you talk about laws like Proposition 12 in this case, where it's not superficially, meaning on its surface, um, discriminatory against other states. In fact, on its surface, it is completely neutral and treats everyone, as Wayne said, across the board fairly. You can't sell pork in California, regardless of where it is grown, that is treated in XYZ humane, inhumane ways, as Wayne went into deep uh, depth about. So how is the pork industry challenging this, given that it's not on its face discriminatory against, um, you know, pork specifically from Iowa or something like that, or is protectionist on behalf of pork produced in California? The way that the industry is challenging this law is saying that while the law is not discriminatory in its actual language on its face, it is in practice discriminatory because California produces and raises little pork compared to other states. The pork industry claims this is going to have ruinous, apocalyptic effects on the interstate and national pork market. However, as we can go into a little more depth, uh, we believe, and in fact, unbiased UC Davis uh, academics have also, also believe and also have written such in a brief to the Supreme Court that the pork industry is vastly overstating the economic burdens that this law will create on the interstate market. Another thing I will briefly mention before I will turn it back to you and you can ask me any questions that I might have missed um, is the, uh, the other prong of the industry's argument, which is that California has not offered a legitimate purpose for this state law. Obviously, everyone can have their own opinions about what is and what is not a legitimate state purpose for a law. Generally, the Supreme Court has held that legitimate purposes include things like public health and safety, um, environmental protection, you know, protection of a state's air and water, things like that. Um, now, when it comes to humane treatment of animals, I think everyone here would agree that that is a legitimate state purpose, even if you are not particularly within uh, the animal protection movement or have strong feelings about that, research and studies for a very long time have shown consistently that Americans do want their food sources to be treated humanely. They don't like seeing the conditions that these animals are actually in. And people across the political spectrum wish to have the, you know, pigs in general or chickens, et cetera, as it might be, treated appropriately and humanely. So, you know, industry can say, okay, this is not a legitimate state purpose for a law. Lawyers will certainly argue against that. There are parties to this case that will absolutely, I am certain, will probably mount excellent arguments against that. 
I also want to take a little moment to talk about the other prongs of Prop 12 that the industry and its supporters have almost essentially ignored, which is namely public health and safety, and also in a sort of collateral way, um, environmental safety. So part of the law that was explicit in its passage when it passed in California uh, years back was in fact to protect uh, the environment and to protect human health, namely protecting from diseases such as, you know, you just listed one, MRSA, but foodborne illnesses, and also to protect against, for example, pollution caused by concentrated animal feeding operations like these pigs are kept in. Now, the industry wants to say, oh, well, you know, those weren't real purposes. It was really about the animals, et cetera, et cetera. But that was in the text of the law. That was in your, the voter guide. When a California voter opens up their voter guide, they saw those as rationales. Um, there is a legal argument around that. I'm not going to get too much into the nitty gritty about what's happening there, but I think it's important to understand this prong of the argument. So it's, you know, let's go over our two prongs from the industry. One, this is going to have apocalyptic effects on the pork market. You know, our everyone's pork price prices across the nation are going to skyrocket, blah, 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 blah. And two, um, this is all because a bunch of hippie Californians want to have their pigs treated, you know, lovingly and humanely in the um, concentrated animal feeding operations. Obviously, you can sense a little bit of my sarcasm there. That's not actually what they're saying, but to make it a little easier to understand, I think that is a lot of the impetus behind this argument and why, honestly, I think that they're hoping that um, conservative legal viewers, conservative lay people uh, viewers and the conservative justices on the court might um, and very well may, unfortunately, um, really, you know, dig their teeth into that argument and find it suiting to their own political preferences, let's say. And, and would those political preferences be aligned with increasing the power of the federal government? What do you suppose might be the the thinking? Uh, what, what What's their end game with this, assuming that they have one? That is actually such an excellent question, Joseph. This case really presents an interesting issue for some of the uh, Supreme Court justices, old and new. On the one hand, um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that political conservatives in America uh, generally like to support industry and the agricultural industry. On the other hand, this is a state law and conservatives traditionally in America, uh, political conservatives have also been on the side of uh, states' rights and states' power, states' you know, ability to self-determine their own laws and have autonomy there. So this creates an interesting juxtaposition here. You know, Where are these justices going to go? Are they going to recognize that the industry's challenge to Prop 12 is, in a way, at its core, uh, huge challenge to the ability of states to be autonomous, to self-determine their own laws, to decide for themselves, you know, what we will and will not accept, not only from a point of the humane treatment of animals, but from a point of public health and safety, the environment, what kind of food we're eating, such a basic thing every day. You know, Americans have breakfast, lunch, dinner, maybe some snacks, maybe some dessert. 
states should have the ability to have some say and be able to regulate their citizens' food. Of course, when the citizens vote these laws into um, you know, enactment, as the vast majority of, or you know, about two-thirds of Californians did, which is a pretty strong majority, especially nowadays. Um, hey, so uh, that Kate, I was just going to interrupt. I'm sorry to, to, to dive into you, but I wanted to pick up on a point. I mean, essentially, the balancing act here for the court is to look at what the state's authority is, because clearly states do have power under our Constitution. Uh, but in this case, clearly Prop 12 does affect commerce, that the, the goods that are moving across state lines and I guess what you're saying is the industry is saying that this is debilitating to the industry, that it's going to force the industry to change its ways because of the size of the California market. But I guess I just wanted to point out that this doesn't affect all pigs in the US. Uh, we raise 130 million pigs in the United States and kill them. And we're talking about just five to six million of the pigs who are raised in gestation crates because the pigs raised for meat are not in these confining crates. They're in pens where they have sufficient room to turn around and move around a little bit. And I noted earlier that already at least 30% of these pigs are out of crates for the most part. California is less than 10% of the market. So how could this have a terrible effect on the pig industry when they already have sufficient capacity to supply the California market, and then some, two other Californians or three other Californias, based on the capacity that they already have. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm really having trouble with in terms of this balancing act. How does the pig industry uh, make that claim with a straight face? And, you know, I think all of us on the side of Prop 12 is struggling with that, too, because it does seem to defy common sense, right? Uh, so the industry is claiming that in order to accommodate Californian preferences, that because the industry is unable, um, you know, from a commercial perspective to separate out meat destined for California from meat destined for other places, that in effect, it will mean that the industry as a whole will either have their operations, you know, essentially grind to a halt or create so many difficulties in trying to separate out these two types of pork products that it will have reverberating effects throughout the nation. And or the industry is saying, you know, because it's completely impossible to separate out uh, cuts of meat that, you know, one that has been treated humanely or one that has been treated in compliance with Proposition 12, I should say, and one that has uh, been raised not in compliance with Proposition 12, um, that essentially, you know, places may have to make all of their pork raised in compliance with Prop 12. Um, I would say, you know, in response to that, I think honestly, the best response so far has come from one of the already filed amicus briefs with the court. Uh, amicus means um, friend of the court brief. So it's a brief that comes not from any of the parties. So not from the pork industry and not from California, but from some other party. 
Some parties will have particular sides, for example, taking California side or taking the industry side. However, this particular brief comes from uh, UC Davis professors who are experts in the area of agricultural economics. Well, isn't that perfect, you would think? Who else do we need to talk to, to hear from, in order to determine this question? And these experts actually filed a brief on behalf of neither side, meaning that at least they, you know, on the brief, it is an unbiased perspective. They essentially made an excellent argument that the pork industry has vastly overstated the economic effects of Prop 12. They also say that the industry um, will be able to comply without having such staggering supply and price issues across the nation. And they also make the point that, you know, not everyone in the industry will comply because after all, it is a choice. A pork producer can choose to sell their pork in California or not. They can choose to not sell it in California and then not comply. Those that already raise their pigs in conditions that are maybe not quite compliant with Proposition 12, but getting close will decide quite possibly that it is economically uh, rational for them to then invest some money to become compliant with Proposition 12. And hey, they then get to be part of a new California market where they even get a little bit of a leg up because they are in compliance. So essentially these um, professors, you know, to make a very long argument short, uh, dismantle entirely the pork industry's argument. However, whether or not this court decides to really credit these experts, um, you know, opinions and not only opinions, but expert facts and expert studies remains to be seen. All right, Kate, let me ask you this. Um, this came to me when I heard of, of the Supreme Court taking this case. How is it different from auto manufacturers having to manufacture vehicles based on California's emission standards? Is there a parallel here? That's uh, a great example of one of the parallels. So California is actually one of the states that, of course, is sort of considered the uh, um, laboratory of the United States, right? Um, they create a lot of unique and innovative. Um, some would say innovative. Some would maybe say poorly uh, enacted or poorly thought out laws um, about, you know, public health and safety, the environment, and here we are now, humane tre treatment of animals. So it is very much in line with uh, California laws about uh, automotive emission standards, um, you know, other uh, emission standards and other air pollution standards and things like that. Um, it's the exact same type of analysis that we have going on. What is the burden on interstate commerce and is this a legitimate um, state interest? It's just a little different than the automotive standards because here, of course, we're talking about animals and humane treatment of them. And it is going to be the first time that this kind of legal doctrine is looked at from an animal uh, perspective. Well, thank you. I, I, Go ahead, Wayne. I'm sorry. No, no, thank you, Joseph. I, I just wanted to, to note that this, this sort of newfound paralysis for the pork industry that somehow it's not able to separate its products out. I mean, I think the pork industry is going to have a lot of problem then 
uh, accommodating McDonald's, uh, as it says that it's not going to use uh, pork that is sourced from pigs that come from gestation crates. Uh, the same is true for Walmart, which sells about 25% of all groceries in the U.S. A larger share of people you know, go to Walmart to get their food than all of California. In fact, two and a half times uh, that uh, the, the market size of California is the Walmart customer base. So how is the pork industry going to accommodate Walmart and McDonald's and Burger King and Costco and the 60 or so other companies that have announced policies in opposition to gestation crates? And let's point out that while the pork industry is taking off on California, and as Kate said, kind of as a talking point to caricature the policy and associate it with a state that's viewed as more democratic or liberal, uh, these anti-gestation crate policies have been adopted in a bunch of states. And <clears throat> Michigan, Ohio, Colorado, these are Midwest states or, or you know, Rocky Mountain states that have good-sized pork industries. They've all said, we're going to get rid of these crates. So 10 states overall, 60 major corporations, and Prop 12 was just the latest in a series of actions against confinement. So if the court undoes this, it is really tipping the scales. It's basically saying, okay, the federal government is doing nothing in this regard on animal welfare for farm animals, zero. There are no federal laws to protect animals on the farm. A lot of people are deeply critical of the federal food safety standards because millions of people are sickened by animal products every year. And California is stepping in and having a fair standard that applies to in-state producers and out-of-state producers. Meanwhile, the corporate sector that sells 90% of all the pork already has announced policies against gestation crates. Is this a crazy thing for California to have done to say no gestation crates when Walmart based in Arkansas has done it, when Sonic based in Oklahoma has done this, when Cracker Barrel based in Tennessee has done this? I mean, these are companies in the heartland of America that are selling meat and eggs and milk, and they're saying this doesn't conform to standards that we think are acceptable any longer. Wayne, I'm glad you mentioned Cracker Barrel because I do love me a good mama's pancake breakfast. So I, I'm glad I can eat there in good conscience. Uh, so thank you for, for all that. I mean, that's fascinating how many corporations uh, are behind this kind of humane treatment. Kate, I know you are working with uh, another one of our attorneys, Scott Edwards, to develop a brief of our own. What can you tell us about the argument you'll submit to these justices? Well, I'm going to be a little general at this point um, and not give away all of our secrets, but um, we, of course, will be supporting California's position on upholding Proposition 12. One of our focuses will be on pointing out to the court, you know, California did not just offer one basis for this law. They offered many, including uh, human health, public health, and uh, safety in terms of the environmental effects of these um, huge pork farms where the porks are confined in this manner. So that will be one big aspect that we will be playing up and not just playing up, but reminding the court that it exists because the Supreme Courts and other circuit courts um, 
case law has shown time and time again that the court is very willing and should credit state laws that are designed and implemented to protect their own citizens' health and safety when it comes especially to things like food products. All right. So the the term begins first Monday in October. A year from now, are we are we going to be victorious or are we going to be unhappy? What's your prediction, Kate? Well, I have a lot of wood around me, Joseph, so I might have to, (laughs) I'm not sure about this. Um, I think if I said we're going to be victorious, I'd have to knock on a lot of wood here. Unfortunately, given what the court has done this term, um, I'm very nervous about how they're going to uh, come out with their decision on Prop 12. Uh, I think there is cause for some optimism. I think case law, a good amount of case law is on our side and even a good amount of policy is on our side, even from a conservative perspective. I mean, this is at its core, you can uh, frame this as a state's rights issue. And I think hopefully maybe enough conservative justices may actually see the um, intelligence and wisdom of California's and ours and California's other supporters perspective. I'll knock on wood there and we can hope for the best. But doesn't um, the fact that they, the, you know, the, you know, this case, you know, went against the pork producers 10 times, doesn't the very fact that they took it indicate that they kind of know what they want to do already? Uh, am I being too cynical and bitter and jaded by thinking that way? No, I don't think you're being too cynical and bitter and jaded. That is part of the reason why it was such a shocker to many legal minds and, you know, legal onlookers that the court, in fact, did decide to take this. Uh, that's not a good sign. And their decisions that they released in this term already, I think, regardless, again, of your personal perspective on whether you like the policy implications of those decisions or not, you can't say that these decisions are not uh, departing from earlier precedent. You know, we had um, Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, for example, just the other day, a major decision that departed from precedent about um, tribal sovereignty and Native American sovereignty over Um, reservations. Um, That, you know, is just one example of a number. Of course, there's also the Dobbs case, you know, that's been all all over the news lately. But there are a couple examples about how the court is really departing from precedent in maybe surprising, but maybe actually not so surprising ways. Well, I I am not, you know, I, I don't subscribe to this view that the courts absolutely have to defer to precedent. I mean, that's how the law changes. The world changes. Uh, Precedent has power and meaning, but it is not always decisive. I think in this case, the surface appeal of the pork producers argument to perhaps some conservative justices, I think is going to break down if they take an honest look uh, at this at this case. And that's why pleadings are are submitted to the court and they really get in much more depth than the the uh, petition for cert that encourages the court to take a look at the issue. And in addition to the fact that uh, this opposition to animal cruelty has been part of our nation for 200 years, in addition to the fact that the pork industry already has sufficient capacity uh, to supply California, and that it already has the capacity to separate out product, It's not going to be uh, as disruptive as they have said, uh, because they work in a 
very bifurcated market right now, and it's going to get more bifurcated as all these companies say they don't want gestation crate pork. But the other aspect of this is the egg industry. The egg industry was a big part of Prop 12. And all of the hens, I shouldn't say all, 90% of the hens in this country when Prop 2 was launched in 2008 uh, were in battery cage confinement, more than 90% of them. The industry has been evolving because it got the signal from Prop 2 that they needed to get out of the cage confinement business. And it's been slowly and methodically doing that. A number of major egg industry trade associations are, are on record as supporting Prop 12. They believe that it's a market opportunity for them to produce uh, eggs from hens kept in more humane living systems. A number of my Republican senator friends have told me this is a tremendous market opportunity for the pork industry to get into California's large market. They can get additional value uh, by offering consumers more humanely produced pork. So I hope that conservative justices are not going to abandon their commitment to uh, the Constitution and to states' rights. I hope they're going to recognize that animal cruelty matters. I hope they're going to recognize that this has been a hugely controversial and extreme practice that mainstream American corporations have publicly renounced and rejected, and that every state that has had this on the ballot has favored the animal protection position. And as our amicus brief will note, and the amicus briefs of many others coming uh, out in favor of California's position, uh, I think any fair reading of this situation is going to lead the court uh, to affirm the lower court rulings in terms of the sound constitutional analysis that this does not uh, violate Commerce Clause principles. Prop 12 does not violate Commerce Clause principles. All right. I agree with you, Wayne. Um, and I think the key word is there is any fair reading. And hopefully the Supreme <coughs> Court does do a fair reading of the facts here. All right. Very good. Uh, Wayne, final question uh, before we uh, thank you and, and thank Kate for joining us today. Let's say we get bad news next year. What are other dominoes that may fall for animals as a result? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to say without knowing exactly what the language of the court ruling will be, but you can be sure that Amendment 3 in, in Massachusetts, which was a similar ballot measure that banned extreme in-state confinement of veal calves, laying hens, and breeding sows, and that also restricts the sale of those products from producers out of state that do not meet those same animal welfare and food safety standards, that's going to be uh, overturned. But California has a number of other laws. California bans the sale of fur. Uh, California bans the sale of kangaroo skins. It's the only state in the country to forbid uh, Nike and Adidas and other companies from using uh, kangaroo skins in their soccer cleats. Uh, there are restrictions on the sale of ivory. You know, if you want to make a new piano, um, you're a piano maker, you can't use ivory to make the, the, the keys uh, on the piano. Uh, there are lots of other laws that really look at products that are used in interstate commerce and the basis of the rationale for restricting that commerce is concerned about animal cruelty 
We're concerned about conservation and species protection. And uh, we think that all of these companies can do easy workarounds. That's the thesis in my book, uh, The Humane Economy, that actually you're going to do better as a company when you squeeze animal cruelty out of your supply chain, when you honor these values that animate the American public. So, Joseph, I'm concerned about the reverberations on this. And uh, really, you're know, talking about one, you know, one government. It would mean the federal government is going to be dominant on anything, any product that crosses a state line. And if the industry has captured the key committees like they have with the Agriculture Committee and the House and the Senate that are so obedient to the whims of industrial agriculture, then we have a de facto deregulation system when it comes to food safety and animal welfare and even, you know, air and water safety in this country. People can go to animalwellnessaction.org to stay abreast of all of our content on the issue. If you subscribe to our news alerts, you'll be able to get uh, content as we publish it. Kate, you've been a delightful guest, um, you know, much more so than your colleague, Scott Edwards, who was just on the other day. So, so you may feel free to share with Scott that you were far more erudite and uh, articulate and uh, savvy than he. So, you know, Oh, Joseph. <laughs> You, you may, You're teasing Scott here. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, you may you may tell him I said that. So that that's great. We'll definitely right. have <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely have you again on uh, Scott. Maybe not so much, but you know. That, I look forward that. to it. I agree with here. you totally, Joseph. I totally yeah. agree with your assessment. Yeah. So again, thank you both, and thank you so much uh, to our listeners for for tuning into the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all of our news and information to sign up for those news alerts I just mentioned. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast. <laughs>